If you like what you're listening to, support this podcast on Patreon. Patreon.com, search Phil Dawson, or find a link in the show notes and join up. It's very much appreciated. Thank you for listening. Chapter 10 Corliss The chief artificer had missed so many meetings of the Privy Council that his absence was no longer even commented upon. Rusko was there as his official representative, but Kayla knew that Urza hardly spent any time talking to Rusko anymore either. The chief artificer spent most of his time working with the new apprentice, Taunos, who had lasted much longer than Rusko had predicted, much to the clockmaker's chagrin. There was a new captain of the guard. The old one had finally retired to spend time with his horses and grandchildren. The warlord chose this one himself, and the new captain mirrored many of the ruler's qualities. He was impulsive, decisive, and active. Patrolling the borders was not enough. This new captain said when he first rose to the position, the Yoshins must secure a corridor to Tomakul itself in order to protect the caravans. Now the Privy Council picked through the rubble of that plan, Armed patrols to Tomakul encouraged even larger attacks from the desert nomads. Falaji tribesmen were now raiding into the sword marches, which had been relatively free of such incursions since the warlord had driven the native tribes out in his youth. Yosha did not have a manpower to both maintain its borders and guarantee safe passage to the desert capitals. We need to pull the plants out by the roots, said the new captain. Go into the desert, find the Falaji base, and crush it. If you can show me where it is and guarantee that it would still be there when we get there, I will gladly try, grumbled the warlord. The desert is like an ocean. Most of it's empty, and we do more damage to our own forces than to the Falaji by taking the battle there. They're at home in the desert. We are not. They're ornithopters, said the captain. We can scout the desert with them. Still few in number, said Rusko. There are no more than two dozen in all, and the chief artificer is wary of exposing them to risk. We practically had to break his arm to convince him to allow us scouts along the border. And what of the search for more Thran stones? asked the warlord. Slow and tedious, said Rusko. There are raiders everywhere, and they seem to be able to smell out our exploration parties. Bok and Mabok preserve us! The, the, the Argivians have the same problem, stammered the Central. They have been attempting to find more stones as well, but have met heavy resistance. The warlord stroked his chin. Perhaps it's time to provide a unified front. With the Argivians? hiccuped the Sential. And, and, the, and the Corlesians as well, returned the warlord. Perhaps it's time to bring the coastal nations together. Do you think a combined front offering peace could lure these savages out of the desert? The captain sputtered for a moment, then said, You think we should talk with those savages after all the men we have lost? You're not listening, said the warlord patiently. I asked if a combined front offering peace could lure their leaders into one place. The captain cocked his head to one side and said, Yes, yes, I think it would. An ugly smile passed over his face. They would be more likely to accept the invitation, added the central, 
if it were extended to the merchants of Corliss. Who do not share a border with the Falaji, finished the captain, and as such pose no immediate threat. And the Corlesians, added the warlord thoughtfully. They want to get their own ornithopters, which both we and the Argivians have. This would be an excellent opportunity for them to gain them, should they get the Falaji leaders to the table. The warlord chuckled and the captain joined in his merriment. For Kayla, entirely too much was unsaid. The men masked their thoughts with the cover of words. "'So we are talking peace with the Falaji?' she asked. "'Yes,' replied her father, his face suddenly somber. "'We are talking peace, but we will also make sure to talk from a position of strength.' He thumped the table with the flat of his hand. "'Meeting adjourned. Good sir, Rusko, I want you to stay and update me on your—' He glanced at Kayla. "'Special project!' The captain and Central left speaking animatedly about the diplomatic requirements for the proposed gathering. Kayla departed as well, her metal heels sliding softly against the marble floor. Something else had happened at the table, something she was present for, but not privy to. Previous conversations had been enigmatically concluded in her presence. It boiled down to one thing, she thought. Daddy was up to something. Even though she was a grown woman, he still sought to spare her certain harsh facts about the world, her mother's death, the plans for her marriage, anything that smacked of secrets, battle, or hardship for others. He was up to something now, of that Kayla had no doubt, and it involved Rusko, but not her husband. Despite herself, her footsteps took her toward the orniary. She found her husband and the broad-shouldered Tonos alone in the domed room. They had dismissed the remainder of the students for the day. Tonos was stripped to the waist and bending a thick spar of candlewood along a graceful line chalked against one of the walls. Kayla knew enough to recognize it as a wing support for one of the ornithopters. The tall toy maker grunted with the effort, and his muscles bulged as he bent the spar to match the chalk line exactly. Hold it, said Urza, dropping beneath Tonos's grip and wiring the newly curved section back to the ornithopter's main spine. Now bend it the other way. Tonos gasped and twisted the beam in the other direction, forming an S-shaped curve. Kayla was impressed. Candlewood was light, but the spar the young man was manhandling was the thickness of her wrist. And, she thought, Tonos looked very good, stripped to the waist. Husband, we need to talk, Kayla said. Urza quickly held up a hand and waved it slightly, but Kayla would not be dissuaded. No, we need to talk. Urza looked up at his assistant. Go ahead, I'll wait, said Tonos through clenched teeth. Urza turned toward his wife. His hair had gone entirely white. Probably, thought Kayla, due to the amount of work he'd been doing. He was dressed in the heavy leather smock that had practically become his second skin over the years. I'm sorry, dear, he said, but I'm very busy. You are always very busy, snapped Kayla, except when you're sleeping, and even then you seem restless. She relented and held out a hand and stroked his cheek. Urza flinched slightly at the touch. He reached up and gently took her hand. It's just that we may have a way to improve the diving speed of the ornithopters. Tonos had suggested that if we truly shaped a spar to resemble a predatory bird's wings, then it would be more maneuverable as well. Kayla nodded and pushed his words aside unconsidered. I think father is planning something. Urza sighed and looked at his assistant. Tonos gave a good-natured nod, but his veins were standing out at his neck from holding the candlewood spar in its twisted position. To Kayla, Urza said, Your father's always planning something. That's what he does best. The princess sighed and shook her head. It's not that. He wants to negotiate with the Falaji leaders and to get the Argivians and Corlesians involved as well. well. That's good, said Urza abstractly, watching the way the wing was spurred line up against the chalk mark on the wall. 
most of the Falangi I've known have been rational men, even if they are problems with the caravans and a few hot-headed leaders. And your father is too sharp to let the Argivians get away with anything. What's the problem? He never wanted to talk to the Falangi before, Kayla said. People change? Urza shrugged, his eyes never leaving the line of the wing. You don't, thought Kayla. But instead, she said, I don't know. I just think something is wrong with this situation. Urza looked at Kayla and sighed deeply. Your father is a reasonable man, an old war horse, but a, but a reasonable man. There are reasonable men among the Falaji, even among the Argivians. I'm sure things will work out. Uh, Master Urza, called Tanos. It's beginning to slip a little. I have to go, said Urza. He turned back to the spar. Well, what about, began his wife. Urza held up a hand as he walked away. Your father wants peace. Sounds good, though a little odd. Are Gideon's involved? Probably he'll tell you what's going on eventually. There was the sound of a metal-heeled foot stomping the floor behind him and the brisk clatter of heels storming out of the room. It ended in a resounding slam of the ornery doors. What was that about? asked Tanos, sweat streaming down his face. I'm not quite sure, returned Urza. Kayla worries about her father too much. Bend the wing spar a little more. Convex there. That's it. Now hold it. The announcement was made the following month. Representatives of Argiv, Yosha, and Corliss were to meet in Corliss to discuss the problems with the desert raiders. Runners were sent under a flag of truce to Tolmakul, Zigon, and other Falaji towns to invite the Kadir of the Suwari to attend as well. Safe conduct was promised to all attendees. The coastal nations selected not Corliss's main city itself as the site for the meeting, but rather an outpost town, Corlinda, located farther up the Kor River, on the haunches of the Kerr Ridge themselves. Should the Falaji appear, the warlord said, they would have less distance to travel. Kayla thought that there was another purpose behind the location. The Falaji would be far from their traditionally claimed land, and the civilized nations would have ample warnings of how large their party was before it arrived. Urza was pried loose from his orniary only by the announcement that two of his older ornithopters would be provided as a gift to the people of Corliss. A full force of a dozen winged machines would appear at the meeting, and two would be left behind. After Urza complained that he would have to be present to tell the Corlesian how to maintain the ornithopters, the warlord graciously extended an invitation to the artificer. Knowing he had been outmaneuvered, Urza protested no further, but instead worked out a schedule that provided for a minimum amount of time away from his shop. The warlord and his entourage would leave early. He would follow with the ornithopters five days before the session began. He also left detailed instructions for Tanos and the students to follow while he was gone. Tanos thought at the time that Urza spent more time de detailing the tasks that needed to be done in his absence than the tasks themselves would take, but he merely nodded when the chief artificer handed over the ream of the parchment. Urza's metal humanoid would also be sent out to the meeting, but would go by wagon. Rusko was in charge of this move and used one of the spring-axled wagons Urza had developed the previous year. The clockmaker was particularly interested in a vehicle that would not rock excessively, though Urza pointed out that his metal creation could walk to Corliss and probably make better time than Rusko would. Rusko, for his part, invoked a number of Yoshin and non-Yoshin deities and insisted he did not want to have to come back and tell the artificer that his great creation had been lost due to a broken limb assembly or had been spotted by farmers while walking through eastern Corliss and accidentally dismantled. In the end, Taunus was left behind with the school. Kayla remained behind as well. The warlord cited the dangers of travel even though friendly lands, he needed her, and the essential, he said, to remain behind and run the country in his absence. He did, however, take the captain of the guard with him. 
The royal party left at Midsummer's Day, and Urza left 20 days later with his flight of ornithopters. The natives of Krug threw celebrations at the drop of a plumed hat, and both departures were filled with much pomp and cheering. The warlord rode out at the head of his royal caravan, mounted on a powerful horse, the descendant of ones he had ridden in his great war triumphs. For many of the natives of Krug, that was how he would always be remembered, astride his stallion in full armor, cantering at the head of his forces. Yet even at the departure paled before the celebration when Urza and the ornithopters took off. They had cleared the palace's great court for the departure, and for the week before, Urza camped on the site with his craft. He double-checked every strut and spar and made sure there were sufficient spare parts to cover every eventuality. Tonos mentioned to Kayla that they were carrying enough components to knit an additional ornithopter if need be. The crowd started gathering as the week progressed, watching Urza move between the machines, checking figures with Tonos, testing and retesting wires, and going over charts and schedules. An electric thrill mounted as the crowd swelled. All had seen the ornithopters before, they were common sight in the skies over Krug, yet never had the citizens seen so many together at once. By the morning of the departure, Kayla appeared to wish her husband well. The crowds watched the couple embrace and imagined quiet, tender words spoken between them. Then Urza gave the signal to Taunos. Taunos, in turn, waved to the rest of the flight to prepare their crafts as Urza climbed into his ornithopter's white housing. As one of the ornithopter pilots engaged their power stones and the great wings, device came to life. Slowly, they pumped the air, limbering up the wings that had been carefully prepared and preened for the days previously. A wave of applause swept through the gathered crowd. A few of the pilots waved from the windows, bringing another louder round of clapping. Then the beating of the wings intensified. Urza's craft, the one with the double-curved wings, took a little hop, then suddenly was airborne, as effortlessly as a bird in flight. The two ornithopters behind it took similar hops, and they were aloft as well. Then the two behind those joined in the flight. In turn, each pair of ornithopters arose from the courtyard like a flock of startled doves. The assembled citizens of Krug cheered as they took to the sky. The ornithopters took a long, leisurely arc around the palace of Krug, beating wings to gain altitude, and the crowd yelled itself raw as they did so. The people waved pennants and threw the small smoke poppers that had become popular of late. Some climbed the higher spires and waved great flags. The ornithopters locked their wings, gave a wing dip in response to the shouting populace, then they were gone, dancing into the morning sun. The people watched them until they were lost from sight, until other buildings of the low hills to the east blocked the view, or for those who had climbed the spires when the ornithopter fleet had become small, indistinct dots on the horizon. A few watched the princess, however, and some claimed that her eyes were wet, that she had dabbed them with her kerchief as she turned back to her palace, essential at her side. In the days and months that followed, some would say she had wept because her husband was leaving her. Some would say it was because she had dreamed what was about to happen and knew she could not change it. And some would say that she knew that the end of her small part of the world and the destruction of Krug would begin at the Council of Corliss. The machines performed remarkably well and took only four days to make the trip to Corlinda. Urza had ordered Rusko to set up a series of base camps between Krug and Corlinda as the clockmaker pushed eastward with the wagons. All the camps were in Yoshin territory and in clear terrain. Each was fully operational by the time Urza's ships reached it, ready with soft beds and hot meals for the pilots after they had completed their day's flying. The weather was clear and pristine, and even the storms that had regularly lashed the southeastern coast of Terrasire seemed to have gone on holiday. Urza had allowed for an extra day of flying time in case of heavy thunderstorms, which normally roosted in the southern curves, 
but there was not so much as a heavy ground fog for the entire trip. Indeed, the most difficult problem the pilots faced was the oceans themselves. At every base camp, a collection of spectators assembled, all curious about the chief artificer and his mighty machines. They clustered around the fields waiting for the craft, and on occasion the ornithopters would be forced to pass close over the crowd in order to disperse them and create a large enough site on which to land. One of the pilots observed it was like herding sheep, but he said too close to the chief artificer. That pilot spent the rest of the flight in the rear of the formation, did not speak again for the rest of the trip. And once they had landed, there were requests for favors, in particular for rides. Urza at first refused, but the pilots, even after a full day at the controls, were willing to volunteer the time to take young children and teenagers aloft. Finally, Urza gave his assent, but he did make clear that he was not going to provide rides himself or allow anyone to fly his white craft with the double-curved wings. The pilots had all been chosen by Rusko, who said he had done it to so to save Urza time. They were at least five years Urza's junior and had an enthusiasm the artificer did not remember having possessed at the same age. The majority were known for stunt flying, for pushing their crafts as far as they could go, and several had walked away from nasty crack-ups. Urza would have chosen those with a better technical background and a higher safety rating, but he knew anyone properly vetted and trained could be a suitable pilot for the ornithopters. Indeed, during this trip, even the most cavalier of the young men flew dead level and kept in formation with Urza's ornithopter for the entire journey. The site that had been chosen for the council was near the meeting point of the three civilized nations in the eastern Terrasaire where the river Khor tumbled from the Kurs into the first of several level plateaus, stepping down to the shielded sea was a suitable spot. It was also connected at the point with an anomalous sliver of no-man's land, an undulating strip that followed an inhospitable peaks of the Kur ridges, as yet unofficially claimed by any side in the dispute. The site was a huge level field with a great open-air pavilion erected in the center over a raised platform. Four other camp areas surrounded the central pavilion, one for each of the attendees. When Urza arrived, three sides of the square had been complete. The warlord's Yoshins formed the western side of the square, the mercantile Corlysians were to the south, and the Argivians occupied the eastern side. The space to the north of the pavilion was empty. That had been reserved for the Falaji, though none knew if they would appear. Urza set down his ornithopter to the west, near the ocean camp. The other pilots followed with military precision. Each ornithopter swooped, hovered for a moment on back-pushing wings, then settled in place. There were no crowds here, no rush of commoners hoping to catch a glimpse of the chief artificer and his pilots. The Oceans were familiar with ornithopters, and the representatives of the two other nations feigned disinterest for purely political reasons. If Urza had hoped to meet any of Tokesh's former students among the Argivian delegation, he was disappointed. The Argivians were, to a man, bureaucrats and diplomats with strong connections to the Argivian king. Argivian politicians considered that the artifact-hunting scholars and their supporting nobles held radical views in the matter of the Falaji, namely that the desert should be free and open for Argivian exploration. The crown, though weak, felt otherwise. Argiv should end where the hills grew rough and waterless, and the Falaji should be left to their desert ways. Since the crown chose who went to Corlinda, all the Argivians sent were isolationists in nature, hoping to obtain a quick treaty, recognize borders, and a safe retreat back home. The warlord was visibly irritated by their presence. The Argivians did bring their own ornithopters, but these were primitive in design, little advanced beyond the constructs that Urza, his brother, and Tokasia had pulled from the embankment of the dry wash many years before. Urza learned from the Argivian pilots that the crown had put a claim on all salvage from the desert and appropriated most of Tokasia's legacy. 
The noble houses continued to dig and explore the desert, but many no longer told the crown what they found there. The Corlesians were pure merchants. The ruling council of that nation had rested in the hands of the guilds for generations. The current lord of the council was a portly woman. Her opinion, and the opinion of the well-dressed merchants in attendance, was that they would negotiate dear, but without a doubt would secure unmolested trade routes to Tomakul. The warlord seemed to tolerate them only slightly more than he did the Argivians. Each of the civilized countries brought its own honor guards. Yosha's forces was the largest, Argiv's was the most ornately armored, and Corliss's was the best equipped as benefited mercenaries and the merchants to employ. Urza retreated to his own tent, where Rusko already had uncrated his metal humanoid. The transit had not been kind to the metallic titan, and something had jarred loose in one of its ankles. Urza spent the first night and part of the next day fixing it so the mechanical creature would be fit to operate in time for the opening ceremonies. The opening came and passed without the Falangi's presence. Official introductions were made and professional courtesies established. There was much talk of cooperation, most of it over the course of a large feast in the pavilion the first night. The Falangi did not appear during the day, nor did any of the outriders report signs to them. Urza spent most of that day dressed in the high-collared, stiff-necked gowns of office, which he had worn previously only once, at his official appointment as chief artificer. The robes were fire-red with white piping and covered his body from neck to ankles. In the summer warmth of the highlands, they were unbearable, and Urza's only consolation was that the official dress of most of the rest of the assemblage looked even more uncomfortable. The second day came and went in similar fashion, though by the day's end the alliance of the three coastal nations was already starting to fray. The representatives of the Argivian king refused to admit that there were any incursions from Argiv into the Falangi territory. The king did, however, have a surplus of functional power stones, which he was willing to use as bargaining chips to buy agreement from the Corlesians and Yoshans. The warlord was insulted by such a blatant bribe, but knew both his country and the merchants could use the Thran stones. The Corlesians were already on the verge of self-destruction, since only two ornithopters were to be left behind, and no fewer than five major guilds felt they had the rights to them. Tense words threatened to break in to open squabbles, by the end of the second day, all parties took their evening meals in their own camps. There was still no word from the Falaji, and many were starting to say that the conference would disband without them appearing. The warlord spoke of insults to the ocean people by their absence, and the Argivian diplomats spoke of patience. The Corlesians seemed visibly worried they would not get their ornithopters if the Falaji did not appear, since the warlord had thrown an armed guard around the flying craft. The Falaji appeared on the morning of the third day. Without warning, there was a low mountain fog that day, and as it slowly burned off, the desert people were suddenly there. None had seen them arrive, but as the mist lifted, there appeared lines of tents clustered around a large, white central tent. The desert people outnumbered any two of the other groups combined, and all apparently were warriors. A path had been cleared from the Falaji tents to the main pavilion, and down this pathway came a strange procession first marched an honor guard of warriors with gold broad-brimmed helmets then a litter carrying the kadir of the falaji's self-styled empire but it was the object behind the kadir that most of the assembled personages gawked in a way they had not done when the yoshin ornithopters had arrived it was a huge device made of brass fashioned in the shape of a dragon the morning sun glittered off the condensation along its flanks and its head twisted slowly from side to side its front legs were like those of a legendary dragon, but its rear quarters were a collection of cogs and treads, and it churned the earth as it moved. 
The procession moved forward with a slow, stately grace, in part to give the other members of the council time to prepare for the official meeting. The warlord assembled his staff on the pavilion first, including Urza and his mechanical man. The device that had won Kayla's hand seemed so woefully insufficient to deal with the titanic monster that approached. Urza followed his father-in-law's pitying look at his creation, and his own countenance grew stern. The Corlesians gathered as well, their lord patiently waiting alongside the warlord as the Falaji approached. The Argivians were late. Its representative pulled on their ceremonial jackets just as the procession reached the base of the pavilion. The honor guard parted, and the litter carrying the Kadir came forward. Urza noted that the ruler of the Falaji Empire, though younger than he, was already running to fat, and his flesh strained in his ceremonial robes. A stocky individual stepped out from behind the litter, and Urza's jaw dropped in shock. Mishra stood among the Falaji. He was dressed in jade-green robes, cut in the desert fashion with high slits along both legs to allow the wearer to ride and fight easily. He wore a cloth around his forehead, this also of green, embroidered with gold lettering in the Falaji tongue. In his amazement, Urza did not notice for a moment the female accompanying his brother, a stunning red-haired woman bearing an ornate staff, one tipped with a dolphin skull. Mishra halted next to the Kadir's litter, as if listening to last-minute instructions. His eyes flickered across the assembled group and stopped, and they reached Urza. It could have been a trick of the morning light, but to Urza it seemed as if Mishra nodded at him. Urza returned the greeting with a slight bob of the head. Mishra stepped forward and addressed the gathered representatives of the other nations. Greetings, most respected authorities and agents of eastern nations. I am Mishra, the chief advisor of the Kadir of the Suwardi, first among equals of the Falaji peoples. His most wise and respected excellency gives you his greetings, his apologies, and asks for your indulgence. He gives you his greetings, for he hopes that matters will be resolved here to avoid further bloodshed on all sides. He makes his apologies for being so tardy in his arrival. We came here by mountain paths that many had thought lost, and had to proceed carefully. And last, he begs your indulgence, for his has been a long journey, and he would appreciate an opportunity to rest before attending to the task at hand. He would like to return to this pavilion after the noon meal to formally begin his work. He and I thank you both for the invitation and for your patience in this matter. Mishra made a deep bow. The Kadir did not wait for a response from the other council members. Instead, he silently raised his hand. As one, the Falaji procession reversed course. The dragon engine backed toward the Falaji camp, followed by the litter and the honor guard. Mishra and the woman took up the rear, but the dark-haired young man lingered just long enough to look over his shoulder. Urza shouted, Brother! and stepped forward away from the rest of his delegation. He could hear the other delegates suddenly burst into a buzz of gossip. He looked back and saw the warlord look stern. Rusko was at the warlord's side and whispered something into the ruler's ear. The warlord nodded, and Urza turned back to his brother. Mishra turned around entirely now. The woman next to him tightened a grip on her staff, but the younger brother raised a hand and dismissed her as well. She hesitated a moment, then turned and followed the rest of the retreating Falaji. Mishra stood statue-stiff as Urza descended from the pavilion. The younger brother did not extend his hand, but rather stood calmly, hands folded before him. Urza stopped a few feet away and assumed an identical position, hands folded, in front of him. "'Brother,' repeated Urza. "'Brother,' replied Mishra. A long silence grew between them, and each studied the other. To Urza, Mishra looked more weather-beaten, tanned and muscular than the last time he had seen him. 
To Mishra, Urza looked leaner and older than before. The younger brother noticed small lines were already growing around his older sibling's eyes. Urza's flesh was the pasty color of the city dwellers. Finally, Urza said, It is good to see you. It is good to see you are well, Mishra replied. I am well enough. And you? Urza nodded briefly, then added, I am surprised to see you among the Falaji delegation. I must confess that I am not surprised to see you among the Argivians, returned Mishra. Yoshins, actually, corrected his brother. Mishra nodded smoothly. Ah, of course, that would explain why the Yoshins are suddenly so interested in raiding for power stones and Thran devices. Exploring, said Urza. Yoshins do not raid. Of course, repeated Mishra, a tight smile appearing on his face. It must be as you say. We shall let the diplomats parse the words for us. Urza gave a stiff nod. I had heard the Falaji had unified with a surprising speed, but I had not heard your name mentioned. Mishra gave a pronounced bow. I am but a simple Rocky, a servant of the Kadir. His name be most revered, his thoughts be most wise. Another silence followed his words. Urza let the pause play out as if unsure what to say next. I am the chief artificer of Krug, he said finally. Mishra allowed himself another smile. How very nice. I thought I recognized a metal soldier among your ranks. One of yours? Urza nodded, and Mishra added, clearly influenced by the Su Chi you studied as a lad. It shows in the knees. Urza said, I built it as a challenge, but did not elaborate. Another uncomfortable silence grew. This time Mishra broke it. I trust you've been well. Very well, said Urza, and his eyebrows shot up. I married, you know. I did not know, returned his brother. I'm surprised to find there exists a woman who could tear you away from your books and researches. Her name is Kayla. She's the warlord's daughter, said Urza. Ah, said Mr. Quietly, but said nothing else. Another silence. Behind Urza, most of the delegates had dissolved into tight little groups. The warlord remained in the pavilion watching the two brothers talk. Finally, Urza said, that young woman who's with you, is she... Ashnan? Mishra shifted, as if uneasy. She is my apprentice. She's very talented. Most likely, replied his older brother. I too have an apprentice, a Tonos, and a Yoshin, and a school with about twenty students. Ah, repeated Mishra, his face very cold. Very good for you. It sounds as if you're thriving. And you, asked Urza, do you have a school? Mishra shook his head. The desert does not allow for such luxuries. We must fight to stay alive. Learning is what you pick up as you go along. You seem to have picked up an interesting device as well, remarked Urza. Yes, said Mishra, and this time the smile was genuine. It does not look like any Thran device we ever uncovered, said Urza. Where did you find it? Beneath the sand, returned his brother. I had a hunch just came to me. You always had a talent for such things, said Urza. A tentative smile shaped itself on his lips. Perhaps later you'll tell me the full story and favor me with a chance to look at it? He added quickly. I have made some changes to Takeja's original ornithopter. I'd like to show them to you as well. Mishra was silent for a moment. Then he said, I would like that very much. Later, perhaps, when this conference is resolved. He bowed deeply and backed away a step lowering his head to indicate the conversation was over. Urza half turned away. The mite stone around his neck felt heavy. He touched the stone, then turned back 
Mishra. Mishra looked up. His hand was touching the pouch resting on his chest. Yes, brother? Urza's face twisted for a moment, and his next words were halting. It is good to see you again. And you, said Mishra smoothly. After this is all finished, said the older brother, we need to talk. You and I, about what we've been doing, about the past. The past exists all around us, said the younger brother calmly. The only question is whether we choose to dig it up or not. The warlord summoned Urza at once when he returned to the Argivian camp. As the artificer entered the warlord's tent, the ruler was seated in his camp chair, flanked by the captain of the guard and Rusko. Your brother is a phalagi? spat the warlord. Urza shook his head. My brother is not a phalagi, but he serves their Kadir, as I serve you. Why did you not tell me? demanded the sovereign. Until today, I didn't even know he was still alive, returned Urza. I see, said the warlord. Leaning back in his camp chair, Rusko, watching quietly from his side, thought the ruler did see, though not necessarily what Urza intended. The warlord's enemies had an ally obviously every bit as talented as his son-in-law. The taste of that revelation was sour. "'What has he been doing with them?' asked the warlord. "'I do not know,' returned Urza, shrugging expressively. "'How did he end up with them?' continued the warlord. His feet kicked restlessly at the stool in front of him. I do not know, repeated the chief artificer. What can that mechanical behemoth do? demanded the warlord. His voice was rising in volume, and Rusko felt the temperature in the tent growing hotter. Urza held up his hands before him to show his lack of knowledge. We spoke of it only briefly. The warlord rubbed his lower lip. His fingers came away, stained with blood. Here's one I hope you can answer. Can you build one like it? Urza thought for a moment. Probably, if I... Get a chance to examine it. Mishra says that he found it in the desert, but is much more advanced than any Thran device I've ever seen. I, I do not think it's Thran at all. The warlord muttered half to himself, half to the captain and Rusko. We have patrols scouring the sand for stones, and his brother finds an ancient mechanical behemoth fully functional? He says he found it, said Urza stoically. I don't know if that's the truth. You don't know if your brother is truthful, said the warlord quickly, raising an eyebrow. I did not say that either, said Urza, hotly. We we did not part on the best of terms. So Rusko has told me, said the warlord. Later, we will talk. He and I, offered Urza. If there is a later, said the chieftain, shaking his head. These Falaji played a trick on us with their behemoth. We were prepared to show them our power, demonstrating our ornithopters and the mechanical man. Instead, they roll up with the legendary beast the size of a ship. The Argivians are all ready to bolt. The Corlesians want to thank everyone for coming, take their own adopters, and go home. No! Those desert raiders, aided by your brother, pulled a fast one on us, and we have to respond. Urza did not question the warlord's words, even when he was dismissed, and Rusko and the young captain remained behind. He did not even visit the ornithopters, which were the hub of much additional activity. Instead, he went to his own quarters and lay in his hammock, waiting for the meetings to begin and for a chance to see his brother again. A table had been set up beneath the pavilion, four-sided with great chairs on three of the sides. The one in the west was occupied by the warlord, flanked by Urza and the mechanical man. The ocean ruler's mood had not improved since his talk with Urza, and the old man seemed on the verge of exploding. 
The chair on the south was occupied by the Lord of Corliss, flanked by two mercenary guards from different units. The eastern chair was occupied by a nervous Argivian diplomat, with two equally nervous bureaucrats at his side. The northern seat was a low bench, desert-style, set for the Falaji Kadir. He arrived in his litter, a half-rolled, half-waddled into his seat. He was supported by Mishra on one side and the red-haired staff-wielder Ashnod on the other. The Falaji had left their brass behemoth back at their camp, though its serpentine neck was clearly visible behind them. The Corlysian lord began the meeting softly. We welcome representatives of the Falaji to the conference. I hope we may be able to resolve matters that have vexed all of us individually and to come with a mutually beneficial compromise. With your kind permission, interrupted Mishra, on behalf of his most eminent Kadir, I have a statement to read. The Corlysian's lord's mouth flapped open for a moment, then she nodded. The warlord sputtered a protest. Mishra began without further encouragement, his words louder than the complaining warlord. We, the Falaji people, welcome the opportunity to speak with the men of the eastern coastlands. Know that we are a unified people under our Kadir, and our empire stretches from Tomakul to the Argivian border, from ice-fed Ronam Lake to the warm Zagoni coast. We are many gathered together, and as such, we are mighty. Whatever else may be decided by this conference, we must make clear that it is our ultimate goal to regain all the land of the Falaji people and to protect that land and the resources that it contains from all invaders, raiders, and would-be conquerors. The warlord startled at the words and interrupted with a snarl. Not a bad little speech for a race of invaders, raiders, and would-be conquerors. Do the people of Tomakul and Zigon agree with your statements, or are they just waiting for someone to strike your young puppy of a Kadir across the snout on their behalf? Mishra raised an eyebrow at the interruption, and even Urza was surprised by the heat of the warlord's words. He put a hand on the ruler's shoulder to call him. However, it was the Kadir who answered in a clipped accent of Nargivian. Have a care, old man. You do not wish to cross me. Urza looked at Mishra, and Mishra nodded back at his brother. The Kadir had learned Nargivian from his rocky and knew enough to realize when he was being insulted to respond in kind. The warlord would not be dissuaded. Have a care yourself, child warrior. Do not trifle with those who possess more experience and wisdom than you. Urza started to speak. Perhaps now would be a good time to adjourn and think about, but the Kadir was already talking again. Do you know who I am? demanded the young Falaji. I am the Kadir of the Suadi tribe. Once long ago, we lived in the Suwali lands, not Ayosha. You called them Suwadi marches. The sword marches, shot back the warlord. When I was a younger man, we cleaned that land of raiders and brought true civilization to it. It is the Sawardi land and belongs to Falaji people, snapped the Kadir. There are not any Sawardi there since your great-grandfather's age, rejoined the warlord hotly. Yes, hissed the Kadir. You drove my great-grandfather from our land. My grandfather wandered the empty wastes. My father gathered the tribes. And now I come to you with my empire at my back and demand the return of my family's land. Urza looked at Mishra, but his brother had a blank expression on his face. Could it be he had not known about the Kadir's demands? The Corlesians and their Givians were talking as well now, and chaos erupted at the table. You are an old fool, continued the Kadir, with a contemptuous sneer, to hope to prevail in the face of our obvious power. I'll show you what I know of power, replied the warlord. Take a lesson, child. The warlord made a gesture. The captain of the guard, waiting outside the pavilion, turned, raised his hand, then dropped it. Out by the ocean camp, Rusko turned and waved to the ornithopter crews already at their machines. 
In a matter of moments, the sky around the pavilion was heavy with the beating of great canvas wings. The flight of 11 ornithopters, lacking only Urza's new one with its double-bent wings, came in low over the pavilion. The Kadir looked up in shock, but Mishra was already next to him, shouting something in Falaji. Urza was yelling at the warlord as well. What is this? The artificer roared. Why are my ornithopters in the air? Why wasn't I told? It's a lesson in power, the warlord shouted in return, his teeth bright like a shark's. You would do well to pay attention to this as well. The ornithopters banked over the pavilion and made a beeline to the Falaji camp. Three of the craft banked right and three veered left. The remaining five headed straight for the dragon engine. Small objects fell from the ornithopters, jettisoned by their pilots. They were black bits of shadow that plummeted into the Falaji camp. Where they landed, the ground erupted in explosions of flames and smoke. There were screams as the flames spread and more bombs dropped. Urza shouted, but his voice was drowned in another round of explosions. The five ornithopters that bore down on the dragon engine glided in low, trying to fling their bombs along the base of the great metallic creature. A string of eruptions blossomed beneath the beast, and it wheeled and gave a metallic scream, but seemed otherwise unhurt. The dragon engine exhaled a huge gout of reddish mist directly in the path of one of the ornithopters. As the craft passed through it, the ornithopter came apart in midair. Its wings folded upon itself, and it crashed among the tents, releasing a larger gout of flames as the rest of its deadly cargo exploded. Within the pavilion, reaction among the delegates was instantaneous. The Argivians flung themselves under the table. The Quilisian mercenaries grabbed their lord, one by each arm, and dragged her backward away from the table, while she shouted orders and obscenities at them. The warlord was laughing now, taunting the young Kadir. The Falaji ruler rose from his bench with a speed that surprised Urza. His hand lashed out. The warlord saw the blow coming and tried to lean away from it, but the youth was too quick. Before either brother could react, a curved blade jutted from the old man's chest, blood spouting from the wound like a fountain. No! shouted Urza and felt his might stone heavy on his chest. He laid one hand upon it and with the other activated his mechanical humanoid. Stop him! Urza shouted. The mechanical man lurched forward and grabbed the Kadir by the front of his robes. The young man let out a choked cry as inhumanly long arms reached across the table and snared him within the fingers of iron root and metal. Simultaneously, the red-haired woman lowered her staff and pointed it at Urza's metallic creation. Lightning danced along the dolphin skull and Urza felt a wave of nausea pass over him. It felt as if every part of his skin had become acutely sensitive. The moment of the breeze inflicted horrible pain. Gritting his teeth, Urza barked another command, and the mechanical being pulled the Kadir toward itself across the corner of the table. Out on the battlefield, the Falaji were attempting to regroup. Mishra had singled its dragon engine, and now the beast's serpentine neck dodged and darted among the diving ornithopters. It caught one and flung it to the ground, the canvas wings catching fire as it did so. On the ground, the ocean troops charged, trying to kill any Falaji who escaped the bombing. Some of the Corlesian mercenaries joined them in the assault. Ashnod shouted, and Mishra turned to see the Kadir in the grip of the metal man. He spun toward the dragon engine to signal one last command, then wheeled to face Urza and his mechanical creation. Mishra gripped a thin hide pouch around his own neck, and green lambent power leaked out between his fingers. He concentrated that power on Urza's machine. Urza caught the backwash of the energies and staggered. The mechanical creation was more greatly affected. Sparks danced at its joints, and steam began to seep from beneath its helmeted face. Its fingers loosened, and the Kadir dropped free, clutching his throat and grasping for breath. 
Ashnod shouted something and Mishra nodded. Suddenly, the northern side of the pavilion was shattered as the dragon engine smashed its way into the raised platform. Ashnod let her staff down as its fires died. She tucked the staff under one arm, grabbing Kadir with the other, and dragged the ruler toward the engine as if he were no more than a puppet. Urza felt the pain subside. He focused his might stone at his metal creation. Mishra! he shouted, his head still spinning. We have to stop this! Dimly, he heard his brother's voice snarl back. So you can betray us again, brother? Urza started to reply. I didn't know, but the stress of the might stone and weak stone proved to be too much for the mechanical beast between the brothers. It exploded at the waist, and its torso spinning around its central pivot and its head jutting flames. Urza screamed as the flames arced around him. The last thing he saw was Mishra, running back toward his dragon engine, his creations framed by a wreath of smoke from ornithopter bombs. The searchers found Urza in the shattered pavilion, cradling the dead body of the warlord. The blasted legs and hips of his mechanical humanoid still stood next to him. The fragments of its head and torso scattered around the lopsided platform. The captain of the guard arrived and saluted. The enemy is in full retreat, sir. Urza said nothing, and the captain continued. We inflicted heavy casualties in the Falaji troops with minimum losses to our own. We lost four ornithopters in the attack, several of the Corlysian mercenaries joined in the assault and want to be paid for their contribution. The Argivians have already fled without drawing a sword. Urza looked in the pale, quiet face of the captain as the soldier continued. The enemy leader, and he paused. Your brother have escaped with their engine into the mountains. We will scout for them with the remaining ornithopters. Urza said something softly that the captain could not hear. I beg pardon, sir? he asked. I just asked why, said Urza sadly, looking at the warlord's face. Why did he do this? You heard the Falaji devil, the captain said. They wanted to invade Yosha to regain land the lost generations ago. It's the desert way, carrying grudges for generations. No, said Urza, his voice now filled with steel. He was ready for this. This ambush, the ornithopters, the bombs, goblin powder, wasn't it? The warlord was preparing for an attack all the time. It should have been a massacre. If not for my brother's engine, it would have been. The captain of the guard shifted uneasily, but said nothing. And why did he not tell me? Asked Urza bitterly. Why not tell me he was going to use my machines like this? The captain stammered. I, I couldn't say, sir. Urza laid the body of the warlord on the shattered floor of the pavilion and turned toward the captain. Yes. You can say, Urza said icily. You can say everything you know. Who knew about this? What were the full plans? What did you hope to accomplish? Why did you not tell me? Why did you not tell the princess? You can and will answer those questions. The captain shifted his feet uneasily. Because, Urza continued turning back to the body, because I have to go back to Krug now and tell my wife her father is dead and I will need all the reasons I can muster to make her understand because I don't understand it myself. <laughs>